Hey friends, on Plain Spoken, as I continue to build up this platform, I uh, get the joy of speaking with a lot of really interesting people, and some of these people are in the local church setting, some of them are lay, some of them clergy, some of them recently have been in the academy. Uh, there have been people that I've read over the years that have deeply impacted me in my ministry, and why would they have talked to me before? Uh, but now I've got a, a, a platform where I get to say, hey, uh, I've got some people that might be interested in listening to you. Would you be willing and talk to me? And uh, one of these people is Dr. Kenda Crazy Dean. She's at Princeton Theological Seminary, and she wrote this book, Almost Christian, that made a big impact on me. I read it about 11 years ago when I was doing uh, ministry in Idaho with, with youth. And uh, the, the question of this book is... Uh, about moralistic therapeutic deism, and we're going to talk about this today. The, the, the subline was what the faith of our teenagers is telling the American church, and um, this is something that I imagine not just uh, a United Methodist uh, audience would be interested in, but all the, also the global Methodists coming out of them. This is not really a Methodist thing. This is more just youth ministry in general, um, and, and so if you know of anybody who really cares about this particular topic, um, I, I would encourage you to consider sharing this with them. If you care about youth ministry, and you really should, then um, I, would, I would urge you to just set down whatever else you're doing and really pay attention to. Uh, I, I should have asked you before we turn on the cameras, is it Dr. Creasy Dean, Dr. Dean, what would you want me to call you in this time? Everybody calls me Kenda. Well, so. Kenda, I'll, I'll give your intro in a second, but I've already called you on screen now. So, Kenda, thank you so much Dr. for joining Dean me today. Yeah. Dr. Dean, Kenda, I'll, I'll go back and forth between those. So, okay. uh, <laughs> Kenda's joining us this morning from the faculty, uh, what was it, over at Princeton Theological Seminary. The fa faculty, they didn't call it a dorm, It's a. It, uh, but uh, is it a dorm? <laughs> it, uh, that I live in faculty housing. Faculty housing, yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. And my neighbors are dorms, yes. Okay, fun, yeah. So if you, audience, if you don't know where Princeton is, it's in New Jersey. She's in the Greater New Jersey Annual Conference, and uh, she's been over it. How long have you been teaching at Princeton? Wow, forever. Um, I uh, finished my PhD in 97 and failed to leave. Okay. So however many years that is, 26 maybe? That's fun. Like well, let me, I, I cobbled together kind of a, a biography on you. So for for the audience... Here's who Kenda is, Dr. Dean, uh, is an ordained United Methodist pastor. She's the Mary D., is it pronounced Senate? Uh, we think so. Okay. Professor of Youth, Culture, uh, Church and Culture at Princeton Theological Seminary, where she works closely with the Institute for Youth Ministry and the Farminary. Did I say that right? Said that perfectly. In 2014, she founded Ministry Incubators with Mark DeVries, to support young people, faith leaders, schools, and communities in faith-based social innovation. Um, she came to Ministry Incubators after 30 years of doing ministry. That wasn't a job description. She teaches practical theology, youth ministry, social and social innovation. Uh, she has an extensive experience in new ministry development, grant writing, nonprofit ministry, especially with youth and young adu adults. Um, as I already said, she's an ordained United Methodist pastor in the Greater New Jersey Annual Conference. She's on the leadership of Kingston UMC and serves on the United Methodist Church's advisory team for new church plants. Um, she hails from a long line of Ohio farmers and Kentucky coal miners. She's a preacher's kid. She's a politician's kid. 
At 15, she attended a Methodist church missions camp on Lake Erie that pretty much changed everything. Might want to ask more about that in a little bit. Uh, a Buckeye by birth, Kenda graduated from Miami University, which is in Ohio, then Wesley Theological Seminary in Washington, D.C., and then Princeton uh, in New Jersey. She served as a pastor and campus minister in Arlington, Virginia, and College Park, Maryland, before earning her Ph.D. in 97. She and her husband, Kevin, loved digging their toes in in the sand in the Jersey Shore, hanging out with their hilarious grown kids. Just a couple more details I found over here. Um, you were a campus minister at the University of Maryland be before coming to Princeton. And then uh, y'all, you and your husband have two grown children, Brendan and Shannon, and an inexplicably noisy cat. So I don't know if the cat's going to figure much into our conversation today, but uh, very interesting details about you. You're obviously a very interesting person coming from working class background, finding yourself in the, the academy today, very concerned with very practical questions of ministry that every local church is dealing with not just the social dimensions, but also even grant writing, very practical economic stuff. Um, I, I failed to mention until now, you've you published a lot of things other than almost Christian. Since then, you published The Theological Turning Youth Ministry in 2011, How, the, How Youth Ministry Can Change Theological Education If We Let It in 2016, Consensus and Conflict, Practical Theology for Congregations uh, in the Thinking of Richard Osmer, and that was in 2019, delighted what teenagers are teaching the church about joy in 2020 and then most recently last year you published innovating for love joining god's expedition through christian social innovation so prolific author thinker about very uh practical and helpful things um as as we talked about beforehand i'm i'm pretty conservative in my I, my personal theology i i'm one of these that's left the united methodist church for theological reasons even so, there are a lot of things. <clears throat> I learned a lot from Almost Christian, and I was, I was conservative when I read that. I, um, I, I think it's eminently practical. It's, it's been very useful for me to think through theologically and practically in youth ministry. But um, you've written a lot and thought a lot since this was published, and the world has changed a bit in yeah, the 12 or 13 years since it was published. Yeah. So there's... Um, a lot of practical things for you to update me and, and my audience about that care about, you know, forget the UMC, GMC uh, divide. There's a generation of young people who don't know Christ. It's a post-Christian culture that we're in. And we're given this task of introducing them to Christ that it seems to me and many others that, that we're largely fumbling the ball. So um, I would like um, before, you know, I, after, after some introductory stuff, I'll introduce how you introduce uh, moralistic therapeutic deism and, and kind of how the ideology works and, and ideologies mix in the church. But perhaps, um, would you be willing to, to start off just by talking about what you understand broadly the task of youth ministry to be right now and the primary challenges that, that you're dealing with and helping pastors and people think through? Yeah, that's a... That's a big question, but it's a kind of, it's the same question we've been asking for probably hundreds of years where young people are concerned, right? When once, um, you know, once parents or older generations um, are confronted with young people, their task is to hand on the faith or that's, that's what we have assumed our task has been for a long time, less so now, but um, 
I, I think that the way I would say it is we are called to represent Christ with, with, with everyone who God puts on our path. But I think God has a consistent preferential option for the young. And mm. that means that we have a particular um, ministry with them, but also part of that is allowing ourselves to be ministered by them. I think in a lot of ways, young people are witnesses to us in ways that we often don't recognize or don't take account of, and they don't even recognize a lot of the times. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's a mutual thing. The church is not complete without all generations in it, right? So, um, you know, I think that by representing Christ with young people, um, and that that means, you know, bearing witness in all the ways, right? Be, I, I In one book, I talk about being a God-bearer, mm-hmm. using the image of Mary, you know, as a God-bearer, bringing Christ into the world through her own life. Um, and um, yeah, I'm, I'm very happy to think about myself and everybody else as being called to be God bearers in this world, in the context that we're in. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that's been a task that we have been, you know, charged with um, maybe from the birth of Christ. I don't know. Yeah. Well, and I would say even before, but until Christ came and extended his Holy Spirit to it, the the, the option of sanctification really wasn't uh, mm-hmm. possible in, in several senses. And so when when we are called to inhabit God's image and do that openly and outwardly and inculcate other people into that, then it, it becomes very... I mean, it's, uh, is there anything more essential in the church than learning to do that well? Um, and then is there any, is it, are you of the mind with me that, that things are not currently going well, or do you think that, that, yeah, speak to that for a little bit. Are you, I, I, I don't hate, I don't like to sound cynical or pessimistic, but it, it seems like if anybody's looking at the world, at our culture, especially right now, it's not, it doesn't look like we're doing very well. (laughs) Uh, There's a meme, I showed it in class this week that went around last year where it was two frames. The first frame was just the world on fire, just a huge fiery blast. Mm-hmm. The second frame was Will Ferrell calling, anybody want to join the choir? You know, And it was just like that disconnect, the world on fire oh, yeah. and with choir practice, you know, is um, kind of my summary meme for where we are in the church right now. And I think that, listen, I'm one of these people that is, I'm not so sure falling apart is a terrible thing. You know, I think, yeah, the wheels are off the church as we have understood it mm-hmm. for, you know, at least a couple hundred years, at least in the U S um, you know, denominational life is, has shifted the, the role of the church and culture has shifted. You've probably read Charles Taylor's the secular age, or at least re- reflections about it. And you know, the church not lacking the influence it's had. People are not expressing their faith publicly in the way they used to, meaning they used to go to church as an expression of faith. Now we go to church to get something out of it. You know, these are these are massive shifts mm-hmm. in the way people think about religion just in general. Mm-hmm. And the church, of course, as a religious institution, you know, feels those ripple effects really strongly. So yeah, I think it's a, I think a lot of the things that we have come to expect church to be are pretty much a hot mess right now. Not all of it. Um, 
I, as you know, I often use the story of um, the shipwreck in Acts as the kind of a metaphor for where we are ecclesially. Um, and the thing, one of the things that I think is so miraculous about that text, you know, the ship it gets run aground and they um, it breaks apart and yet everybody gets to shore. And one of the reasons they get to shore is because, um, you know, the people who can't swim hang on to broken parts of this ship. The, the flotsam is what we would call that, right? Um, in order to wash up on shore with that. So God uses the same thing that's breaking apart as an instrument of salvation. So it's not like just because the Legos are falling apart in the way that we've constructed them mm-hmm. doesn't stop them from being useful for building what God has to come. Yeah. So in fact, it might be the precondition for which, from which we have to start to build what God has to come, you know? Yeah. That- so actually that things falling apart is actually a great foundation for creativity going forward and allows us to see possibilities that we could not have seen while we were erecting the edifices that we once you know knew as the cultural influences of church yeah that all makes sense to me and um so the 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 person who my mind immediately goes to to be in dialogue with that is rod dreyer who wrote the benedict option who's his his mind it was uh, I'm pretty sure his his denominational affiliation is Eastern Orthodox and but his uh-huh. his mind was that Western culture has um, really been poisoned by a number of of toxic ideologies. I'm sure he would agree that moralistic therapeutic deism is is one of many, um, but that there is no way to redeem what has been accumulated. And, and, and instead, there has to be an abandonment of of what is and a retreat to create a new space that is not poisoned by these different ideologies. And then once the world falls apart, then the church has maintained itself and is able to re-enter on its own terms rather than give in to the, 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 the thing that youth ministry deals with very explicitly that the rest of the church also deals with just not as explicitly is the culture, you know, and how it is that we, are we always opposed to the culture? Are we coming alongside the culture? Are we partnering with the culture? Are we, what, what, what posture are we taking? Um, I grew up doing, uh, in in the United Methodist youth setting where my characterization would be that it it largely gave into the culture and was not a countercultural uh, thing. It was, you know, a polite thing off to the side where come when you want and we'll give you pizza and cookies. And um, that that is the same kind of tone-deaf thing that you were talking about in your meme, where it's the church really deals with fundamental existential questions of worth and value and purpose. And when you're not dealing with that and you're not making people uncomfortable around that, but instead you're just trying to politely fit in with the culture around and offer just a little uh, whipped cream on top or something— um, it, it just seems really strange. And so people like Dreyer just say, look, the whole thing's been compromised. It's, it's, it's irreparably broken. The only answer is to leave and do something else for now until things crash. Yeah. Does it seem that far gone to you or do you think that? Yeah, it, these are great questions, Jeff. I, I think I'm not sure that, Dreyer's option. The, I'm not sure that I buy the Benedict option uh, of retreat. Um, I do understand the impulse. Um, there are 
times in which I think that that might be the solution, but I think that's actually a misread. It might be a misread even of Benedict. I'm not a scholar on that, so I can't give you a lot, but mm. you know, monastic communities were actually real engines of reform. They mm. weren't, um, they didn't just go hide in a hut in a hill, most of them, um, a few, but um, I think that it's also a misread of the incarnation because, you know, Jesus didn't go hide. Mm-hmm. He had the opposite impulse. He went straight to the middle of the mess. Mm-hmm. And that seems to me to be the call of the church rather than to hide from culture, to go headlong into, you know, where we have, you know, abandoned our call to be human, mm-hmm. you know, yeah, and to redeem that. And, the only way we now, the only way we survive that mm-hmm. is to do that with a pretty strong. I'm I'm going to just spiritualize it right and say I, I'm going to I need to be hanging on to Jesus while I'm doing that, or mm-hmm. I'm going to get lost in that. Mm-hmm. I will never come out. Of, I don't know if you've read this book called Orbiting the Giant Hairball. No, it's this great. It's this. It. It's this great manual on how to be creative and survive institutional life. I think everybody should read it, but. The long and the short of it is the guy who wrote it was a creative um, uh, uppity up at Hallmark. And what he basically says is that institutions are hairballs, that they are this tangled mess of stuff that has sort of accumulated under the couch after years and years and years. Every tradition, every time you do something once, every um, habit just sort of accumulates into this mess, right? Mm -hmm. And all institutions are made up of hairballs, right? And his view is that to survive that, what we need to do is you've got to learn to orbit it. You've got to be close enough to the gravitational pull. Let's call the church the hairball, right? Sure. Uh, the human church. Um, close enough to his gravitational pull that you don't go off into deep space mm-hmm. or you're no earthly good to anybody, right? You've got to be in conversation with it. You have to have a relationship with it, but you got to be far enough outside the center of it that you can, that you're not sucked in by the gravitational force if we've always done it this way, mm-hmm. right? And so that allows you to orbit it. Now, where he, he's not a Christian, right? So he's not thinking in these terms. But where Christian theology, I think, would challenge that is to say, yeah, Jesus shot straight into the middle of the hairball Mm -hmm. to blow it up. Jesus did not orbit it. Jesus entered it. And we are called to do that too, but we can only, we're never going to get out again unless we're getting, you know, on our own effort. Yeah. If we can keep clear enough and keep, close enough to Christ in that hairball, we have a chance of escaping it. But that's the image anyway, that I have in my mind yeah. as in the way that we relate to, co- to culture. I think it is much harder than simply abandoning it and going off and doing your own thing yeah. in, you know, in some hut on a hill someplace. I certainly understand the appeal of that. And there might be times, I think maybe crisis times, where we temporarily must do that. Mm -hmm. But on the whole, I think the church is called to be embedded in culture and to be the, you know, the holy impulse that disentangles some of that mess. Um, But we cannot do that without a Christology, that's for sure. Christology being a a robust theology around the person and work of Christ and and how that impacts us. So the... The, you're going to know how to be in dialogue with me for the remainder of our time because the one of the the 
the growing edges for me, my wife and I find ourselves in a place where we, you know, we're raising four kids, the eldest of which is, is seven. And we've made the decision not to put them in public schooling, uh, to send them to an institution for eight hours a day that inculcate them in anything outside of Christ, you know, um, which, you know, it's not the job of the government to inculcate people in Christ. We would agree with that, but we're very concerned about what they are being inculcated in and how that doesn't gel with what we're trying to inculcate them in and, and our household, the household of God. A lot of my personal theology and ecclesiology has been informed by the work of Alan Kreider, who, um, the primary book, The Patient Ferment of the Early Church, who makes mm -hmm. the case that the, the unique ministry of the early church was done as an exclusive kind of secretive group ex uh, that, that wasn't going to the center of culture and saying, everybody come in here, but they sat on the periphery maintaining their purity, and then in very controlled ways letting people trickle in from time to time. Um, and so it seems yeah. to me yeah. that if, well, and it, it has everything to do with effective discipleship. Do we more effectively do that on the periphery as an exclusive entity, deciding the terms and conditions on which people enter in in a controlled fashion, or do we do so by shooting into the middle of society and very dynamically and innovatively engaging, um, which is what I understand the 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 dominant mode uh, ideology around um, evangelism to be, especially within Methodism, which is very evangelistically minded. You know, John Wesley went to the fields and preached and uh, brought it to the masses, and um, Kreider and and others that I, I read um, have helped me kind of step back from that and go, I'm not sure it's... Maybe it worked in, in the context of early Methodism, but in today's moment where... Um, there seems to be so much confusion about what authentic Christianity is and how much it does comport with other worldly values. It, it, I'm, I'm much more open to that possibility that the Christian task, it's not necessarily to become anchorites or, or hermits that are disconnected from the world, but to have a comfortable distance from the world where we, we get to be in control of the, the pace and the content. Yeah, I I think, well, first of all, I think there's different ways to think about distance. Mm -hmm. um, not, it doesn't just, it's not just a matter of proximity, right? Um, it's distance has to do with the degree to which I am different from something else, right? I can be different from something that's very close to me too. It's harder, mm -hmm. right? It's much harder. Oh yeah. I think that what we are experiencing and the reason why the, um, you know, withdrawal feels like the way we have to survive this. Mm -hmm. um, I'm not ready to jump on that bandwagon yet, but I, there, I understand why we are there because our systems of formation are shot. Mm -hmm. We don't have, we don't have enough mechanisms for forming disciples, for understanding who Jesus is even, yeah. you know, to pick them out in a crowd. Mm -hmm. And so if we don't have, a clear sense of who God is and who we are in relationship to God. Mm -hmm. of, and, and I'm, I'm a Christian formation person. So, you know, I actually think, you know, let's take Jesus as the model of God. I'll, I'm happy with that for right yes. now. And um, you know, the more Jesus-y we can make it, the more Christian it becomes. That's the, that feels like a simple, oh, oversimplified, but uh, a fair statement. 
well, we don't know who Jesus is. We don't know. We don't have systems of formation. Mm-hmm. I was just watching an episode of this crazy um, AI thing on Peacock last night called Mrs. Davis. She's trying to find the Holy Grail for some artificial intelligence. Oh, thing. dude, I saw and the in, intro. I saw the trailer for that. It looked weird. My ha- my husband thinks it's really off the rails. He won't watch it. So when he's not here, I watch it. And anyway, you know, it's this new age woman who has no sense of theology whatsoever. She's not raising, she becomes a nun Mm -hmm. because she's so in love with Jesus. Okay. There's a lot of impulses. I get that, Mm -hmm. right? It's don't watch it for the theology, Okay. but um, it's, um, it is a commentary, right? On the way we think about this, just become you know, if we if we can just make Jesus into somebody that we can love well, you mm-hmm. know, then it's all good. It doesn't matter if you have anything else. Well, that's crazy. There's a whole lot that goes into Christian formation. Mm-hmm. But you know, Christian Smith makes who's the who's the researcher behind the fun the foundational research for almost Christian. The last study, the last book that came out of that data was about parents and children. And what they argue is that listen, there are really no more institutions left in our culture that provide Christian formation, except parents. And parents are not very good at it these days, and not very many of them are doing it. Why? Because they're not formed, right? Yeah. 62% of people who are raised in, uh, who are who grow up since 2010, I think, were raised in homes without faith. Mm-hmm. We think that people are leaving church. Nope, they were never there, you know? So we are, it's, it's a, we have a different way of understanding the church's role in our culture now mm-hmm. than we have had, you know, for 150 years anyway. I think that it's part, I think it's part of our calling to be that church in this moment. But what we can't give up on is Christian formation. Well, do me a favor. You just made a contradistinction between the way that we're looking at the church today versus the last 150 years. And I'm, I'm not, not sure I'm not sure a lot of people really have a clear idea of what has shifted there. Could you spend a minute yeah. on that? Sure. Well, I, I think let's um let's use the beginning of the 20th century for an mm-hmm. example, because that's when you and I had a conversation about liberal theology in our emails. And that is the birth of liberal theology was, uh, as we have come to call it, that um, was around the beginning of the 20th century. It was a very optimistic um, time in our history. And there was a huge emphasis emphasis on what's called the social gospel movement, right? Where you are following Jesus' example in, you know, loving people radically so that it brings all sorts of social issues to the surface that we are called to address. And so lots and lots of social reforms happened in the name of the social gospel movement. A lot of people like to to compare that with where we are today, but there's a big difference. Um, The emphasis, even in the innovation movement on social reform, as you know, I'm all for it. But what we have to hang on to is the formation part, because in the early 20th century, there were lots of other institutions that were doing Christian formation. And if you weren't going to do it in your mission work, you could sort of count on there being some formative impulse in somebody's congregation because they were in a congregation, in their family, in schools, in other community organizations. Christian formation happened in lots of different places 150 years ago, but it doesn't now. In fact, it barely happens in a lot of churches. So 
we can't take for granted that people have an inkling of who Jesus is or, you know, what the, what the spirit is up to in the world. You know, that can mean anything because we don't have those formative institutions to back, to back us up anymore. So when we're so talking about any ministry has to take formation as part of its job. So when we're talking about these other institutions that would inculcate people in, in Christianity, um, a lot of people of my generation probably don't even know what those other institutions would be. Would uh, the school system in, in some parts of the country probably were explicitly Christian and had kids reading their Bibles? Uh, YMCA, yeah, there, I mean, what else? And there, Yeah, there are problems with that, right? So we tried to correct the problem, but in so doing, we didn't replace what got lost. And so, yeah, the, um, so schools like the McGuffey Reader even was, you know, used Bible verses as things children read. Mm -hmm. um, civic, there was a, there was a very um, thinly veiled Protestant ethos in civic organizations, Girl mm -hmm. Scouts, you know, the um, communities, uh, organizations of a million different kinds, as you mentioned, the YMCA, um, all of that was the YMCA actually was part of the uh, was an evangelistic tool mm -hmm. of the second great awakening. So it was like all of those organizations existed as places that you reinforce reinforced not just Christian faith, but Protestant faith to the point that when we got an influx of Catholic immigrants in the late 19th century, they looked around at all the civic institutions, the schools, the the you know community. And they're like, these are these are not Catholic. You know, they're Christian, but they're Protestant. Yeah. We don't want our kids to be Protestant. And that's how the Catholic school system was formed mm. as an alternative to that. Right. So that their kids weren't, you know, inculcated in Protestantism by accident. Mm -hmm. And um, so, yeah, all of but we don't have any of that right now. You know, yeah. very few organizations, very few schools. And we have abolished a lot of that formation in the name of um, you know, religious pluralism. I, I like you. I, I think that it's not the government's job to be teaching Christian formation. Mm -hmm. I kind of stutter at the kind of formation we'd get if that were the case. Mm -hmm. But it's um, well, we, we kind of know. <laughs> we kind of know what came out of when when the government was when we did have public institutions that were unashamedly Christian. And, we, we had civil religion, uh, which resembled Christianity. I would say it wasn't salvific Christianity, but uh, even so, it was much more comfortable using Christian language and appealing to Christ explicitly in, in public settings and, and stuff like that. But uh, a, a lot of this is undergirded by theology, and I, I love that you were the one to bring up Christology, who is Christ as the backbone for um, the, what the work of the church is supposed to be. A lot of it is ecclesiology. What What is the role of the church? How is it supposed to function? Um, and then I, I love that you've also brought up liberal theology at this point, and which uh, the, the way that you framed it was it was very much married to modernism, which was a very optimistic understanding of anthropology, the nature of man, and, and how high we could climb. And it was at least um, in a salutary fashion, um, married to Christ and what he's doing in the world, but eventually it just became, we're really not so bad. And through our government and through our organizations, we can do amazing things. Look how much money we have. Look at all this power we have. And then World War I happened and World War II happened and Vietnam happened and post-modernity came. 
And then, so the, the larger thing about liberalism slash progressivism that I, I wanted to turn to at the end of this, I don't want to do it yet, but just kind of framing it, is I, I, I identify all of that with a questioning of, an open questioning of the authentic doctrinal convictions of the established order. That's what I think the spirit of liberalism is. It's, it's, are you really sure we have to have this? Do we really have to believe this? Do we really have to maintain this? And I think that, that asking those questions and having the dominant mode of being, being this kind of deconstructivist notion, I see that as what has undone everything for the last 200 years. And so the, the flow of this conversation, I, I, uh, my, my agenda, and you can interrupt it, you can go whatever direction you want, but I wanted to talk <laughs> about the framework that you establish in Almost Christian and how it is that ideologies can infect the church. We're going to talk about moralistic therapeutic deism, but also other ideologies that you've probably noticed since then, but then bring it back to liberalism, because the thing I didn't even say out loud is, you know, my wife and I, we've taken our children out of the public school system, but we've also taken our our family and our churches out of the United Methodist Church because of this ideological uh, stuff that that we feel very threatened by, um, and that I'm I'm convinced is a threat to the Church of Jesus Christ. But you're not in the same place as me on that. So that is the that's the nugget of why I wrote you in the first place. Is yeah. she is an intelligent woman who knows a lot more than me, and I need to hear someone say. I should have asked you before I started on disaffiliation and leaving here. Um, <laughs> I've already made the decision that I made, and it could have been the wrong decision. I have to have that humility to acknowledge maybe I've seen things wrong. Um, so, um, okay, so I, I've, do you like that flow of the conversation from here on yeah, out? Okay, absolutely. is there anything before we turn to Almost Christian and the framework you established there uh, that you think is important to cover? Anything just about youth ministry broadly for an audience that isn't, Mm -hmm. Well, only to say that, you know, youth ministry by, by its very nature um, tends to follow a lot of the trends of the church itself. And um, so, I like to think youth ministry is the R&D department of the church, but it also kind of mirrors. And what, what okay, that looks yeah, like okay. ministry right now is that um, in the same way that the form of congregations is changing and the form of church ministry is changing mm -hmm. form of youth ministry is changing too. Mm -hmm. um, youth groups, for example, we know now um, are, they, they do a lot of good things socially for kids, mm -hmm. but they are, they're not a good way to form faith. You know, faith does not get formed in a youth group. Faith gets formed through and this, and we have lots, we've got 50 years of data on this. Now faith is formed primarily in families in religious congregations, part, you know, and that may not be a traditional co congregation. It doesn't matter, but a community of people who follow Jesus and that you're a part of and through significant mentors of faith, you know, those, so it's, it's not rocket science. It's any, anybody who's done youth ministry knows this. It's, it's the relationships that are the, um, the secret sauce mm -hmm. of handing on faith and, you can't love until you are loved and you don't know what it is like to feel, to be loved by Jesus until you are part of a community of people who are doing their level best mm -hmm. to try to 
live in a way that loves like Jesus. Um, that's that we're not going to get it right even there, but we're going to get it a whole lot. We're going to be a lot, lot closer than your average high school on a Tuesday, mm-hmm. you know? So, yes. yeah. Yeah. I decided, I decided to talk a little bit more theology before we go on because, okay. So the place that I got to with youth ministry, I, 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 I tried to do very intentional youth ministry for a time. And I just got to the place where if I'm treating someone differently based on their developmental ability, I'm already setting them up to fail, whether that be because they're mentally disabled or because they're young and don't have much experience. My understanding is that that the authentic mode of Christian discipleship is by nature multi-generational. And if I'm not facilitating young people walking alongside older people in faith, not just, I mean, the, yes, the mentor thing, but more the class and band thing um, the, and the Sunday morning worship thing. So I'm just, at this point, I am completely unimpressed with a midweek youth group that cannot yeah. get their youth to worship on Sunday morning and walking in faith. with. I, I don't think they're doing anything with these kids. Well, I often worry that they're inoculating them against real faith. Um, well, you and every student I've had, in the last, you know, five or six years, you know, they don't even want to call it youth ministry anymore. Okay. You know, they want to, I don't know what they want to call it, but it's like, yeah, I want to work with young people. And also, you know, um, I don't, I don't see myself as doing quote youth ministry. Youth ministry has become a thing, you know, it's become an industry kind of. Well, it's and, almost a notion that if you have a church that doesn't have a youth ministry and a youth program, you're doing something wrong. That's That's been the assumption, the cultural assumption for, I want to say, at least 60, oh, 70 yeah. years. For sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But the, but that's because we have become accustomed to equating youth groups or youth programs with youth ministry. The way I would frame that is if you've got a church or any Christian community that's not doing ministry with young people, then you're doing something wrong. That is a whole different thing from saying, if you don't have a youth program, you're doing something wrong. So you the, know what I'm saying? The, ta- the approach I've had here we have explicit children's ministry where we've got a catechism i walk them through we teach them how to use the hymnal how to navigate the bible all that stuff but with youth i just say this church is for anyone who is interested in hearing about christ and him crucified of any age but we're not going to have affinity groups in the church we're not going to have a singles ministry a young people ministry an old men's ministry we're just going to be the body of Christ together. And if people need to be catered to, they need to go to another church. Um, how realistic yeah, does that seem to you as a model for the future? Does that seem to be like a tone deaf kind of regressive approach? Or do you think that there might be promise for that in the future? Yeah, good question. I, I don't think it's um, I don't think it's an impossible approach. I think it is a lot more likely in smaller congregations mm-hmm. than in large ones large groups by nature splinter into smaller groups mm-hmm. because you can't you get lost in a large group unless right. you can subdivide it somehow um and i don't think it's you know a terrible thing to have an affinity group um for certain things however what we do know is that you know the primary vehicle of formation and here we're back to that word again yeah, yeah. Um, over the centuries has been worship it's certainly it's not been meeting you know worship for year, for centuries was the they didn't have christian ed programs People came together, they worshiped, they ate together. If you saw somebody taking food to somebody, you went with them. That was formation. That's the way the community was formed. That's how you passed on faith. 
you brought people along who were new to the community into those practices, into those habits. Um, so I'm a big fan of, of adults inviting young people into the practice of faith. And literally, I mean the practices yeah. of faith. Some yeah. of that is worship. Some of that is service. Some of that is um, stewardship, you know, how you take care of your money. Um, uh, some of that is how you talk about yourself. All of these things. We don't tend to think of those as all practices of faith, but historically, that was part. That's part of the thing. You became a stone cutter by watching other stone cutters yeah. and by trying it out. And yeah. so, you know, that Stanley. And yeah, Adelaide. you you say enough things that sound like some some people that lean left. It's just like they're living in a different world, and I don't feel much connection with them. But you're talking about the importance of the family. Very very core and key to, to what, what I believe in as a, a – conservatives talk about this all day long. Uh, another thing you just brought up was Christian identity is not a feeling. It's, it's like any other thing in the world where you have to be inculcated. There's a period of instruction, of uh, apprenticing under a master. This also goes against a lot of um, – it's not a progressive thing. It's just kind of the spirit of the age thing where people – I feel, therefore I am. You know, uh, feelings give legitimacy yeah, to things. Right, right, and so right, right. there's That's... a very practical, real thing. I mean, you, when I read your book, it was like, yes, there is an authentic, real thing with spiritual DNA called Christianity. There are things that are not Christian. There are things that are Christian. And then the center of that for you, uh, I understand, to be Christology. Who is Christ? You know, and a, and a disciple is one who bears a strong family resemblance to Christ. I didn't coin that yeah, term. That's somebody that's somebody I else. think that's John Wesley. <laughs> Was it really? So but then the thing that divided the United Methodist Church is so we agree, you know, Christ is is the model of righteousness and a disciple looks like Jesus. What we couldn't agree on is what did what does Jesus look like? And therefore what you know, we said our mission is to make disciples of Jesus Christ for the transformation of the Well, what does what are the marks of a disciple? And we found that we had two on this continuum of liberal conservative. The liberal Jesus is very different from the Jesus that conservatives read when they open their Bibles. And so we're making very different disciples, or we want to make different disciples. But in the meantime, we're also competing with all these non-denominational churches and just trying to get people in the doors. And so there's this, you know, we, we have these different ideals we're ascribing to, a different Jesus, different discipleship model, and competing with worldly modes of doing church, and that's meant that we're we were miserable. You know, to my mind, a, a separation needed to happen. That that way that I just frame things. Do you think? Do you agree with me that liberals and conservatives generally have very different Christologies, or does it seem to you like that might be a, a misread of the situation? Yeah, I got to think about that. I don't know. Um, it's a good question. I. I tend to think that, you know, I tend to think that we have different ideas of who we are, maybe. And yeah, that tends to color how we think about who Christ is. So here's here's the thing. I think we are in a period where the virtue the church has lost, and I don't care whether you are liberal, progressive, conservative, whatever, is mm. humility. We don't have it right. Mm -hmm. None of us have it right. Mm. And we are, you know, we're going to do the best we can. 
but we've got to give each other enough grace to say that, listen, you know, here's, I, we think family is important. I, but my idea of a family and what that, what that looks like and somebody else's might be very different. And I think, you know, as I read Jesus, you know, my, my interpretation of Jesus, it is a very, maybe it's a very different interpretation of Jesus than others, but I don't know when we got to the point where we thought we had to have it all right Mm -hmm. to be the church. I, we, when has that ever happened? The disciples didn't have it all right. I don't know how we think we we are going to have it all right. No, I mean to be fair, Doctor Dean, I'm not sure. I'm not sure how many people really are of the mind that we have to have hundred percent right um, in order to be authentically the church or authentically Christian. I I think the pushback and the reaction was there are these people that are in the same covenant body as me that are actually preaching the polar opposite and a polar different Jesus than me and what I read the Bible to say. And so it's not this exacting, ungenerous, ungracious approach where everybody has to agree with 2,000 propositions, otherwise they're not a Christian like me. It's more yeah, like, yeah, yeah. are we even heading in the same direction together? Or, I mean, the, as a conservative, I got the impression these liberal progressives actually hate me. They hate what I stand for, and they're doing ministry against the harm they think that I'm doing. They think I'm preaching something that is causing gay kids to kill themselves. They think that I'm trying to drag our society back into a more miserable, bigoted time, and their ministry is to undo mine. And so I got to get away from these people. Um, so I, I, I understand that there is a caricature of people like me that are like, you know, you have to believe this, this, and just like me, or else you're not a Christian. And I, but I, I don't think th- it goes both ways, Jeff. I mean, I think there is that caricature is, is everything that you just described about the way conservatives are viewed. I think that, um, there, you could just change the word to liberal and people would have the same feeling. And I actually don't think that either of those perspectives are reflecting anything about the church as much as they're reflecting the way our society has um, polarized right now. We are inevitably, you know, going to chant, and this is part of this whole conversation, right? We're mm-hmm. going to channel the culture that we are part of. Yeah, We don't want to do that at the, we, we want to be set apart. We want to be holy vessels in that culture, but we're not good at it. And the things, many of the props that we have had to hold us up have, have become pretty rickety, right. Mm -hmm. In terms of our Christian identity. Mm -hmm. So what that means is we're all a little scared because the rug has been pulled out from under something. This is what Niebuhr talked about as shipwreck. Mm -hmm. When the thing that you thought was trustworthy is pulled out from under you. And I think this experience of shipwreck is universal. It's not conservative or liberal. Everybody feels it. Mm -hmm. And I'm sad that we can't get our acts together to work together on it. Mm -hmm. Um, Like you, I finally got to the point where I'm like, we're going to have to split so we can get some ministry done, you know? Um, and so I think that in that way, because we share some of those impulses, I haven't given up on the fact that we might actually, you know, get to the point where we can work together. Mm-hmm. I don't think that I, I I deeply think this is a conviction. I don't know that this is a fact, right? Mm-hmm. This is where my what my heart says. I really believe 
that the closer we stay tied to the to Jesus, to mm-hmm. the life, death, resurrection of Christ. Mm-hmm. If that those if that part of the gospel could be our story, that that we will be able to find a way to, you know, to love consistently. I don't think it's about hating each other. I think it's about we don't know how to be like Jesus. We don't know what that looks like. We say we have a different view of it, but I don't I'm not positive we I'm not positive any of us know what we're talking about. If I read the gospel and I see Jesus doing these things and by the you know, I, I don't this isn't a, a a debate point, but we say Jesus weighs in on things mm-hmm. that Jesus didn't ever talk about, right? Yeah. This is the stuff that we are doing what we have to do as humans and interpreting the scripture in a way that we can make sense of our cultural context. Mm -hmm. But when we start saying, well, Jesus says this, and therefore I'm going to do that in in our culture, there's a lot of room for, for us to get it wrong. And LGBTQ conversations is just one of them. Yeah. And I think, I think pretty pretty much everybody would agree with that. Um, So, and I think, uh, so I, I, I interact with a lot of different conservative networks, not all of which are Methodist. Um, right. And they have different theological backgrounds and different hermeneutics as they come to the scriptures. But I'm able to engage in really fruitful discourse with Reformed Christians or non-denominational or even Roman Catholic Christians because we have a, a similar hermeneutic when we come to the scriptures where they mean what they say, they say what they mean, it's for me to obey, not always to understand um, this kind of, I mean, I guess it would be caricatured as a fundamentalist approach, but I feel more kinship with them than I do with liberals because of, not of Christology, but I think what, we, what we've what dis- we discerned over several decades is it's the doctrine of Scripture that really divides us and the hermeneutic that yeah, we use as we true. come to God's holy word. Yeah. So, yeah. so someone like me would actually say... Um, we actually can know who's hitting closer to the mark of who Christ is and what discipleship looks like based on what the scriptures explicitly say and also pretty readily imply. And then the the areas where there can be disagreement and give and take is how readily is this implied versus how much am I eisegeting myself into interpret? How much? So so as I'm hearing you talking, one of the things I am wondering is as as I read this, it became clear to me. Dr. Dean believes in ontology. She believes in something real called Christianity that has an essence that is not subjectively mediated by me or anyone else. But as, as, as I hear you talk about seeking the character and work of Christ or what it, what it means to be a disciple, I'm not hearing... Well, I am hearing a notion of ontology there. There is a literal historical Christ who had a character that we should be ascribing to and, and meeting by the power of the Holy Spirit. But I'm not necessarily hearing clarity yet on how we reach that and achieve the same mind that was in Christ Jesus. And it seems like the United Methodist Church completely failed at that. I know how that happens within a conservative framework as long as there's some graciousness. But so, and then the the caricature that we're dealing with here is, um, I, I gave you one a, a conservative read, and you said you could change that to the mirror opposite, and it would apply. What conservatives understand to have happened with institutions in the West is that conservatives built them, liberals co-opted them, and that they can't build their own. So the Liberation Methodist Connection was 
a liberal denomination that tried to get off the ground. It crashed and burned from the get-go because liberals, progressives don't build. They, they co-opt and take over and repurpose. And so that's, that's the theory that I'm going to introduce with Almost Christian as well, where you were comfortable saying moralistic therapeutic deism does that as a parasite that comes and invades a healthy host and repurposes it. And that's how conservatives have seen liberalist, progressive stuff. And that's how they, when you say our read, our Christology comes from our own subject, you didn't say the word subjective. I'm forgetting the exact language that you use, but we take yeah, our frameworks well, and we put it on it's Jesus. Colored, it's colored by it. I think that's inevitable and human. Sure. I, I do think, listen, I just to keep the record straight. Yeah, yeah I do believe. I, I have a pretty strong... Um, transcendent theology you know i'm i it's um i think that there's more to this world than we know and i'm not gonna um reduce christ to the human um jesus i think the you know the resurrection i believe in the resurrection and all of the things that that break, implies. break down what you mean by that for a lay audience when you say you have a high transcendent theology what does that mean for lay people I, that are I, listening to that yeah i think that there's um a there's a lot of mystery in the world mm -hmm. that which we can see and on our horizon, the, what Charles Taylor calls the eminent frame, the, the things that we can see and touch and measure, mm -hmm. which is what makes things real for most people in our society. Mm -hmm. I think that's a fraction of what God is up to. You know, I think there's way more about what God is doing in the world and in history and in our lives and all the things than that can describe. Those things are, um, I guess above me, you know, above my pay grade, above they are, um, mis they're mysteries. They're mm. too much for me. Yeah, and that is by definition, you know, how God operates. God is both human and divine, mm -hmm. and that is the central mystery of the incarnation, right? So, um, I don't know if that if that says no. That's helpful, and really. and I'm realizing something that's also helpful that I neglected to do for our audience. Anytime we talk about liberal conservative, there's a tendency on the part of most people, I think, to associate that with political uh, ambitions or motives and dispositions. And I wanted to be clear with our audience and, and with you, whenever I'm talking about that, I'm talking more about an ideological disposition in the world. Conservatives mainly believing that those who came before were not idiots and passed down deep wisdom that we uh, abandoned at our own peril liberals being much more comfortable questioning the foundations upon which we stand and experimenting with things that um, history, uh, for one reason or another, decided were not good ideas. Um, yeah, and to the extent that I'm a liberal, I'm, I, I tend to talk to myself more in terms of progressive. That's problematic, too. Jesus didn't care about progress. Jesus cared about faithfulness. But mm -hmm. the um, but the bottom line is I, I do think that there is um, – there is a tradition to innovation approach to faith that I'm a fan of, right? You say, can't traditioned say that again. Innovation. This is a Greg Jones phrase. Okay. Um, traditioned in that you what we are doing that is new is conditioned by that which has come before it. Okay, sure. How could it, it doesn't not be? mean that we are just we're we're not just repeating it without you know changing anything, but you know do this in remembrance of me. We do that to remember you know, this moment when, you know, Jesus was um, in the upper room, right? Mm -hmm. We do that to stay close to 
the Jesus intent with things. However, we don't take communion in the same way that Jesus was eating in the upper room, right? We've, we have changed that over the time. So that would be like mm. a tradition to innovation, right? We take, um, now it is a sacrament of the church. It's not just a meal shared by disciples around a table. Let, you know, me, that's let, me, I, let me reframe that for a, a lay audience and see if you still agree with it. So sure. conservative traditionalists are motivated largely by the notion that they can recreate in its essence something that is eternally true. Roman Catholics, for instance, believe that when they attend upon the Lord's Supper, they are literally participating in the exact same event that happened uh, yeah, at the Passover. Yeah, that's a different theological yeah, understanding so, of the Sabbath. So yeah. what, what I understand you to be saying is that's actually not in the realm of possibility. What we do today though it may resemble things that came before, is not a one-to-one correspondence with it. There is always going to be a retranslation and in some sense a corruption of that so that the yeah. identity of things is is always going to be morphing and changing. That's well said. Thank you. Yeah. Okay. I'm proud of myself. <laughs> okay. So, <laughs> so, well, I mean, but this is where... This is what exposes these these fissures that that are not bridgeable because you know for me the integrity of the Christian faith and the whole purpose of it is completely dependent upon the purity of the church and if that is precluded from the realm of possibilities from the front end then we're going to be engaging in something very different right Right but here's where I would go a different direction yeah. I would say the future of the church does not depend on the purity of anything the future of church depends on Jesus Christ period Okay. And now then yeah, we have ahead. to interpret what that means, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so um, there are always, there are going to be people who say, well, I'm interpreting what that means by the words I see on this page. Yeah. And there are other people who are going to say, I'm interpreting what this means. And for, this is the way I understand the Wesleyan quadri- quadrilateral, the, mm-hmm. you know, scripture, reason, tradition, experience. So, mm-hmm. it, you know, there is a room for human reason. There's a hum- room for human experience to modify that, even if we didn't want that to be true, it would be true, right? Because we are human beings. We bring our embodied experience to everything. So, so I, I want to highlight. Uh, yeah. the, so I highlighted, uh, he, I hope it's helpful for audiences. There, there are certain things that conservative traditionalists insist are possible that progressives or liberals would just say, it's not possible, man. So the one that, that you said before this was, it's not possible to recreate an act that has a one-to-one correspondence with the, the origin point. Before that, you said, and I don't remember the exact language, but what I heard you to say was, it is not possible to read the scriptures and not subjectively eisegete yourself into the scriptures. Um, yeah. And then what you just now said, uh, it was connected to this. It's it's excluding from the realm of possibility something that traditionalist conservatives think is essential for the the Christian faith to be legitimate. So that's that's what is. It's not that I think I'm figuring out something that bridges the divide. It's something that explains the divide. Uh, yeah, yeah. Better for where it is. Yeah. Well, for the record, I have not given up on. Um, bridging the divide, but I don't think you and I can be the bridges. I don't mm. think any human can be. Mm. Um, this is where I really think that uh, uh, a gracious, humble reading of who we understand Christ to be um, is our only hope in that. 
we can go forward if we are going forward with Christ. And but we have to be able to simultaneously accept that um, we have a very impartial or a very partial view mm-hmm. of who Christ is. I, I commonly use that story of the, you know, the blind men and the elephant where, you know, the people who are on the side of the elephant think the elephant's like a wall and somebody yeah. else think the elephant is like a rope. It, the bottom line in that story is we need each other to have a, a more full picture. Yeah. You know, for me to be a champion of innovation in the church without traditionalists would be folly. You know, I would be off in outer space somewhere. Mm-hmm. For a traditionalist to be trying to recreate, you know, first century Christianity mm-hmm. uh, without acknowledging the role that we have in the world today, I also think is missing the boat. Yeah. The one thing that we have in common is Jesus Christ. Mm-hmm. Um, so this is why I'm really concerned about formation. Yeah. Because if we know who Christ is, we have a chance. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's a, a I'm looking at the time and I'm realizing we're already we're already out and I'm not even going to get to ask you I'm not even going to read your book back to you. So, um friends, um if you've enjoyed this conversation, you want to hear what Dr. Dean has to say about the the line of questioning I was going to go down then um, I, I would just encourage you to let it be known on, on the comments, and um, uh, I'll, I'll ask Dr. Dean to come back, and if if this wasn't too much of an inconvenience, then uh, maybe she'll say yes, but uh, we've, we've only got a couple minutes left. I, I do kind of, I had a quick, it doesn't need to be a long thing, but one of the things that conservatives talk about increasingly is the role of the father in the family, and I've seen it also in the role of faith formation. Um, and I and I realize that that we live in a cultural moment now where it's kind of icky to talk about men and women being different and fathers and mothers being different and having different roles. But in your look at at teen ministry and faith formation, have you noticed? Have you seen that that signal that that the distinctly male biological male father presence in faith formation has a unique role to play in faith formation? Well, you know, I've only seen it one place and it was in research that came out about 25 years ago. Mm. Uh, And so I don't know where that has gone. I think it would be somewhat um, called into question today, but maybe not completely. And here's what it said. It came out of Search Institute in Minneapolis. And that was that the primary influence on a child's faith between the ages of basically one and 12 is Mm. the mother. The primary influence on a child's faith as a teenager is the father. And so that's the only thing that I've ever seen that that took that apart. I think that it's possible. But here's the other part of that. We also know from, other, this is a different study. We know from other research. There are so many people, whether it's your mother or your father, mm-hmm. I'm not sure is as important as that there is a primary figure of faith in your life who believes in you beyond all reason, who basically can give you can help you smell the kind of unconditional love that God has for us. Right. And so if that is um, something that is not present in your family, what we do know is that congregations can come around and kind of serve that role for people. So I don't know whether it's men or women or whatever. I mean, you know, I, I, I grew up in a family where my mom was the active church goer. My dad was the skeptic and, you know, I don't know. I came out a Christian out of that. So who knows what that means, but the long and the short of it is, you know, 
I was well loved Mm -hmm. in my family and I was well loved in a congregation that convinced me that the kind of love I was was experiencing, the kind of people who were believing in me Mm -hmm. were people who were trying to say, this is how it is for God and you. Mm -hmm. This is what it feels like to be loved by God. Only it's even better. And um, I was fortunate to get to kind of have a taste for that enough to, you know, shape my life trajectory. So I think the bottom line is, you know, parents matter, uh, men and women. I'm, I don't know. There might be other research out there. I don't know what it is. Mm-hmm. Um, but you, like you say, the whole idea of um, gender specificity is really um, coming under fire right now. Mm-hmm. I don't really know what that means for the research, but okay. Well, it's an interesting final comment, and uh, Dr. Kendo Creasy Dean, <laughs> I'm so glad you spent time with me today, and uh, I'm I'm sure my audience has benefited. I'm also sure that we've only covered a tiny bit that is actually really core and key to doing ministry well in the church. So uh, thank you so much for the work that you are doing. I'm, I want to plug the work that you're doing, and so let's make sure to have uh, links to your work uh, in the show notes to this. And then um, I am going to pray that we we find a, a, another time to sit down and finish this conversation because I I still have questions. I did a bad job getting my questions answered today, but thank you so much for bearing with me and uh, God bless your your work there. Uh, thank you for for working for the service of the church and for teens. You too. Thanks, yes, Jeff. All right, take care. <laughs>